0: We have been going through the Book of Romans for, I can't believe this is our 10th week of GCF already. Um, We actually, with Thanksgiving happening in two weeks, we only have three more GCF left for the semester, um, which blew my mind when I uh, looked at that. But this is uh, our ninth sermon uh, in the Book of Romans, and our theme as we look at this book is learning to live. Uh, and each and every one of us, we learn things as we live things, and we live in light of what we've learned. It's kind of this, it's the circle of life that the Lion King was all about. Uh, and one thing we know is as we grow, we are never learning in a clean or sterile environment. We're always learning in the presence uh, of other things. I mean, you. You might have, if you have spent more than one year here and you're done with your gen eds, you might get into your major at the university and realize there is one class that is just riveting for you, that you love it and you want to know more about it. For me, it was whatever class was the complete opposite of media law. Um, that's it is everything evil, anything that wasn't media law was things I wanted to enjoy. Now here's the thing, even if it's something we desire to learn, even if it's something that we find to be practical and in our field of study, we're still limited, we're easily distracted we think of our assignments. We think of our homework. We think of what we're going to do when class is done. We think of what we're going to do on the weekend. We think of our fantasy football team. We struggle to remember things. We might be attracted to it, but that doesn't mean we all develop photo memory because we, we enjoy it. We even, and I know you guys might not know this because I'm sure 10 weeks into the school year, no one has experienced this yet, but you will get tired at some point. You'll get tired of studying. You'll get tired of late nights. You'll get tired and you will need to go to bed. And as you grow um, on from university and you grow uh, into an adult and have families and careers, uh, we're always trying to figure out not just here but for the rest of your life what it means to learn and to live and the relationship between those two things. Let me give you an example. Um, Jojo and I are not runners. Uh, in case you couldn't tell by our physique, we are, by nature, large men. However, we are able to run. We have all of the faculties given to us which allow us to run. And just the other day, uh, I, Jordan and I are just getting swole every day at the gym and so naturally we run into each other there. And uh, he was finishing up his workout and I was starting mine uh, and I said, well, let's race on this track. And so we go out there and if you guys have ever been inside the YMCA, you realize it, it's 1 16th of a mile is the track. So it's a small track with two lanes in it. And you would observe the smallness of this track. You would also observe the largeness of these two men. And you would also find that on this particular day, it was like grandma walk up there <laughs> on that track. Yet, we were fully able, we knew how to run. And so we started this dead sprint as two above average sized men dodging terrified old ladies as we panted, plotted, and dodged to avoid destruction this entire lap. And I will concede that Jojo beat me, barely, but he beat me um, and, and what we learned is that even though we knew how to do something, we had to learn how to do it in the presence of a lot of obstacles and it took more skill than we thought was necessary just to run. We knew running was simple. Just point yourself in a direction and move your legs. That's all that goes into running, right? Um, But we had to learn how to do it in the presence of things that we need to work around, in the presence of things we need to understand. And actually, it was terrifying for us, and it was terrifying for those who were around us. But, as believers, our lives, your life, is basically a large man running on a grandma-filled track. You need to take what the Bible tells you as true, which seems simple, which seems clear-cut, but you have to learn to apply and live out the gospel in a world where our path is anything but clear. In this life, we will face hardships, obstacles, trials, temptations, distractions, both inside of us and outside of us. Even if you were to wall yourself off from any sort of external distraction, what Paul is talking about in Romans is that we still face distractions on the inside. And that's because we, as believers, if you're one who is a Christian and believes that Jesus came and died for your sins and took God's wrath so you might have life and life abundantly, we are suspended between two worlds. We are, on one hand, what Paul has put forth in Romans chapter 4 and chapter 5. You are redeemed. You are declared righteous. You are no longer dead. You are no longer a sinner. And yet, being declared righteous means that before God, because Christ has taken our sin, he finds us innocent. However, none of us underwent some miraculous space jam-like change of our physical makeup when we became saved. We still stub our toes. We still wrestle with sin and with hardship. We still falter. We still have lacks of faith and momentary lapses of worship. But we also know that while we've been declared perfect in Jesus, and while we're still partially imperfect here, there's a day that's coming when we will be completely redeemed. We will not only be declared righteous, but as we'll see in First John, for those of you who are at church in a few weeks, that when Christ appears, we will be made like him in a different sense because sin will die when we die and it will not be brought back in the resurrection. That means that one day for the believer, the track will be cleared. The obstacles will be removed and we will live freely as believers unhindered, no doubt of mind, no twinge of heart, no battle of conscience, and this tension, being redeemed, yet not fully redeemed, this is where we live. We live, if you will, between the two gardens, the Garden of Eden and the garden where God dwells with his people in Revelation 21. And Paul today, in Romans 7, verses 7 through 25, he's just going to build that tension. It's really a weird passage in the scope of the Bible, because Paul is prying into our present humanity. And this is what we're gonna see tonight, okay? It's kind of a confusing thesis, um, but hopefully it will gain some clarity as we go. We're gonna see that the life of a believer, this is what it means to learn to live as a Christian. The life of a believer is a battle between who you no longer are and who you are not yet fully. A battle between who you no longer are, we've been redeemed, we're no longer dead, but who we are not yet fully. We're not fully redeemed because we still live in a fallen world. And to see this battle, to see this life that we live, Paul's gonna give us three lenses that we could view our life from. The first is the life lens of death. The second is the life of desire. And then the third and final one is the life of deliverance and division. So that's what we're going to look at tonight. Um, let's pray and ask God to be gracious with us as we look at his word. Lord, this text, um, more than any text in scripture, nails us right where we are. It gets at the divided hearts. It gets at um, the, the, the heart right now that is thinking it should be somewhere else and doing something else and is waiting for me to stop praying and finish a sermon so they can leave It gets at the people who are wrestling with sin but claim to be Christians. It gets at the devout Christian who loves God but still falls. And it gets at those who live in the tension between who we no longer are and who we will one day be. And that beautiful tension is shaped and drawn to the cross of Jesus Christ for the glory is in the battle of that believer. So Lord, tonight I pray you teach us how to live you frame our expectations and our responses to our humanity we know all too well. We pray this in your holy name. Amen. So, for those of you who have been with us in Romans, Paul is always anticipating the argument. Okay? He's writing a letter. No one replies to his letter on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram. And so he has to assume the response of people. And so he's going to ask one more rhetorical question. Two weeks ago, Paul talks about freedom from sin. And he says, should we then sin so the grace may abound? He says, by no means. Last week, we looked at freedom from the law. And Paul's answer is, well, are we free to sin because the law is destroyed? And his answer is, by no means. And now, after talking about freedom from the law, he's going to assume a response we can have with the law. And this is what he assumes, verses 7 through 12 of chapter 7. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death for me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy. The commandment is holy, righteous, and good. So let's unpack what Paul is saying here. Um, Because last week, we looked at this law, right? The law is... um, the Old Testament legal system that God gave to his people. It was the regulation. It existed. It was the you must be this tall line to get on God's roller coaster. You must look like this and live like this to be a perfect people and have fellowship with a perfect God. But what we saw in the Old Testament and what Paul has declared to be true in Romans 7 is that we are all imperfect. No one is righteous, no one is perfect. Because the first sin you commit disqualifies you from being a perfect person. You're taking this class as pass-fail. And the first sin disqualifies you from the law. And so Paul's logic in this question goes like this. Okay, God created us perfect and we sinned. That's Genesis 3. The law doesn't come until Moses a couple hundred years later. So sin preceded the law. Sin, the thing which makes us imperfect, existed before the standard of perfection came. So, if God gave us the law, which required a perfect people, knowing that we were by nature imperfect, is God unfair? Is, are his, uh, I saw a bumper sticker today, and it says, you'll always be frustrated until you lower your expectations. Does God just have too high of expectations for us? Is God too picky to accept anyone? Paul's answer, is the law sin? By no means. Paul says this. He says the law gives us commands and commands provoke sin. The law isn't bad. Commands are not bad. But sin comes alive through these commands. What do I mean by this? I mean something that each and every one of you already knows to be true, okay? So forget any sort of theological commands given from God and just think about how you respond to someone's commands in general because we know that simple commands provoke disobedience, don't they? I want all of you right now, here's here's a test. If you've been in a sociology class, I've probably done this to you already, so you know the answer but then you're already screwed, haha, joke's on you, you'll find out later, I'm gonna stop talking. Uh, I want you to picture something in your mind. Picture an object, any sort of object, okay? I want you, you're free to choose, right? How many of you, by show of hands, when I said that, pictured a red elephant? Maybe Garrett did, he pictured a pink elephant, okay? I mean, you're all free to do it. You all didn't choose to do it. Now, listen to me. Do not think of a red elephant. How many of you just pictured, in your mind's eye, a red elephant? All of you did, okay? Why? Because in this instance, we realize that the mere presentation of a command at least forces us to consider the alternative. It forces us to consider even the object or the antithesis of that object. But let's say you tricked me, right? We had to comprehend that. We had to comprehend the red elephant, and so I thought of it. My beautiful nine-month-old daughter, Adley, um, she is a crawler now, and she is an expedient, ferocious, tenacious crawler. Um, And she has this pant that she does when she starts to crawl, where she's like, she's like running to a bag of donuts. And, and like, like she's going to binge watch Gilmore Girls, and she just goes like, <laughs> and she just takes off. Um, and if you've, been, if you've been in my, my house, um, you, there's a, a hallway upstairs, and in that hallway are four doors. It sounds like a riddle, right? There are four doors in the hallway. Take the blue pill or the red pill. Um, and three of those doors are completely open for her to go through. There's my wife and I's bedroom, my office, which is where her crib is, and her brother and her, technically, bedroom. In each of those rooms are toys. In each of those rooms are soft, wonderful, safe things for her. And she is free. We leave those doors open. She is free to go in and out as she pleases. Behind the other door is the bathroom. And if I open the bathroom door, all of the doors could be open. And she goes to the bathroom every time. And you know what she does in there? She doesn't go in there because there's this mystical object of her affection. She goes in, and and you know, when she sees that door, right? Gilmore Girl's pant comes on, like, (coughs) Krispy Kreme's. And she takes off with her little pudgy legs, she ducks her head, and she hauls. (laughs) And when I get there, you know what she's doing? She's sitting in the middle of the floor waiting for me to come through the door, just staring at the door, like, I made it. Now what, Dad? I'm like, you're nine months old! (laughs) I'm terrified of this. But she has no reason. There's no joy for her in there. There's no secret toy we keep hidden from Adley in that room. There are things which are dangerous for her and disgusting for her to touch. Today, Owen was in the bathroom, and I heard Adley go in there. He's like, Dad, Adley's touching it. I'm like, what's she touching, Owen? She's like, she's just touching her hands in the toilet. And I'm, why? Why are you doing this? And yet, that's all of us. Her heart is a microcosm of things we experience daily where we could have zero desire to do anything wrong. But as soon as a commandment comes, we're provoked. And what Paul says is we're provoked by sin. It's not the fault of the law, which contains the commandments, it's not the fault of the commandments, it's the problem of sin which leverages itself and produces what we saw last week. This is the microcosm of what it produces. Uh, Chapter 7, verse 5. While we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law, okay, our our sinful feelings aroused by the law were at work in our members, our body, to bear fruit for death. And Paul gives... uh, He's going to go on and describe something here, but what he's really describing is is this is the life of death. And this is where each and every one of us start. As soon as we can understand commands, even on 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 a secular level, we seek to disobey them. At best, we seek to manipulate them. And in our heart, we definitely know we want to challenge them. Each and every person has experienced what Paul said both in regards to secular authorities but chiefly in regard to God's commands. Being created in his image, the only right response is to worship God. And when we are born in deadness of heart, not worshiping Jesus, we've chosen to disobey as provoked by sin. And Paul uses, uh, he gives an example of this and he says, without the law, I would not know what it means to covet. For the law said, do not covet. And that commandment produced in me all sorts of covetousness. Why? Why did that happen? When Paul heard the command, do not covet, right? Do not desire something that's not yours. Do not envy. He said, it didn't just produce in me covetousness or envy. It produced in me the full spectrum of it, all kinds of it, indescribable envy. Why? Because that's, that's the exact opposite of why the law was given. So Paul is here referencing the 10th commandment in the 10 commandments. But you know what uh, Moses says to his people at the end of the 10 commandments? Look at what he says in verse 20. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. The command was not written to lead you to sin. In fact, the command was written to keep you from sin. And yet Paul encounters this command and it produces sin to the nth degree. And Paul, I, Paul's being really specific in the commandment he's talking about here because it really gets at all of us. Because we can say in, at one level, well, I don't desire, I don't act on things that I know I shouldn't act on. You could give me a command that regulates my actions and I'll toe the line. That was me, right? I towed the line, As a kid, I grew up a Christian. I didn't have any sort of blatant external sin. But you know why Paul chose this commandment? Because all of the other commandments deal with outward actions don't murder, don't steal, don't commit adultery, don't build an idol. But this one deals with his heart. For covetousness is not something that manifests itself outside but it's something that reveals that the problem is in our hearts. And even for each of us who looks at our life and say we were a relatively good person, it goes to show that our hearts, even in the slightest desire, prove to be our undoing. And it's through our hearts that sin kills us. The premise of this is simple, right? Obey the law and live. Disobey the law and die. But look at, What happened in verses 10 through 12? The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin seizing opportunity through the commandment deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. I'm going to say it again. This is where we all start. We start. By sin gaining hold of our hearts, not because we cannot meet the law. For that would be unfair. If God just gave us a law saying, you can't reach this, too bad for you, nananana boo boo, that would be unfair. But that is not what kills us. What kills us is not our inability to meet the law, what kills us is our desire to not meet the law. What kills us is the desire to refuse the law. And you see what Paul says, it's the result of sin deceiving you, making you captive, and killing you. See, this was the first sin, wasn't it? Don't eat from the tree, or you'll die. What does the devil say? Did God really say, he just doesn't want you to have what's best? He doesn't want you to be like him in all of his godness. And sin deceived Adam and Eve through the commandment and brought them death and only death. So my question for you um, that Paul is going to give us some insight into is for those of you in here who do not consider yourself a Christian, how do you talk about your heart? Generally good, generally peacekeeping, on a whole, I'm a nice person to be around. As someone who claims to be a Christian, how do you view your heart pre-conversion? What language do you say? Because look at what Paul says is the summary of the unconverted heart in verse 13. Did that which is good then bring me to death? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. How many people like put that on your resume for internships? At one point, I was sinful beyond measure. I was a holistically flawed person. And yet, each and every one of us began in this life of death. Each and every one of us knew only death and death abundantly. But a change happened, right? This change is what was described in the first uh, six chapters, the salvation that happened, right? Rather than being owned by sin, We died to sin, rendering it harmless in the cross of Christ. Rather than being under the burden of the law, we saw last week that we are free under the power of the Holy Spirit. This is a huge transition that Paul has been harping over and over again. Once dead, now alive, once enslaved, now free, once in bondage, now in willful service. And this change happens. And this change happens to Paul very subtly in this text. Uh, Actually, in verses 7 through 12... Paul is using past tense words. Um, But starting, excuse me, 7 through 13, he's using past tense words, but starting in verse 14, Paul begins to speak in the present. There's been a change in how Paul is talking. Now, for those of you who are nerdy, um, there's a very significant, heated, and lively debate about uh, chapter 7, verses 14 through 25. And the debate is this. Because of the nature of what we're going to see, Is Paul speaking about his life pre-conversion? That's option one. Paul talking about himself when he wasn't a Christian. Option two is Paul talking to a believing Jew who loves God but hasn't yet accepted Jesus. Or three, is Paul talking about himself as a Christian? And there's a lot of debate going on, and it's true. That each and every one of those things, the unconverted, the God-fearing Jew, and Paul as a Christian, there are aspects of truth that can be found in this text. We could definitely look and see things are true from each of those perspectives, but here's the stance I'm going to take. In Romans 7, I believe Paul is speaking about his struggle as a believer. I believe when we encounter this text, we're not seeing Paul speak of who he once was. We're seeing Paul talk about himself as he now is. And here's why. In Romans 7, 5, the verse we just looked at, um, we saw that life under the law produced fruit unto death and only death. Two weeks ago, in Romans 6, verse 21, we saw this. But what fruit were you getting at that time? Talking again about pre-conversion, about a non-believer. What fruit were you getting at that time of the things to which you are now ashamed? For the ends of those things is death. So anytime in Romans, Paul talks about what an unbeliever is characterized by, it's always death. You desire death, you merit death, your fruit is death. Dead, dead, dead is how Paul speaks of the non-believer. And this is what we just saw. The life of death that Paul talked about being ruled by death, being ruled by sin. However, in this text, which we're about to look at, we're going to see tendencies which are sinful. But we're never going to see Paul use the term death. Where everywhere else when Paul talks about sin, in a non-believing sense, he says it results in death. And here we don't see that. You see, rather than seeing fruit unto death, what we actually are going to see is a desire for good. And I believe this is the second life that we live as converted believers. And this is the life of desire Okay? And again, where Paul previously in 7-13 through 13 was speaking as a non-believer, now he's speaking as a present believer. But look at the reality that he begins to paint in verses 14-20. through 20. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do not do what I want, I agree with the law that it's good. So now it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. Kind of a confusing text to understand what's going on here. But here's the thing. When it comes to your life as a believer and the way in which you are called to grow towards Christ, we must wrestle head on with the reality that while Romans 3 is wonderfully true, that while we have been declared righteous, while we have been brought from death to life, while we are now presently holy and wonderfully saved by Jesus, and while we have the ability and the power to act without sin and to live a sinless life, each and every one of us will sin. Each and every one of us will wrestle with sin, fall to sin, taste sin, and be deceived by sin. And I love what Paul's doing here because Paul is talking about his feelings here. This is unique in Romans because so far Paul hasn't been talking about his feelings. He's been talking about what Paul knows to be objectively true, what God did for him in Jesus Christ. God saved him. God purchased him from slavery. God brought him out from under the law. God married him to his new husband, Jesus, who will take care of him and love him and protect him. But now we see Paul's feelings. This is important for each and every one of us. Our feelings of guilt, of shame, of sin, of happiness, of joy, and of contentment, they are real. But we must understand them in light of what the gospel has already presented to be true. Your feelings are true, but oftentimes your feelings are not the truth. And the truth shapes the way We know our feelings. And see, when we think of uh, how we live our lives as Christians, we often have an unrealistic idea of what it means to be Christian. And because we have this unrealistic idea, it actually influences how we view sin. And it influences how active or passive we are in our Christianity. Because we see the wonderful truths that Paul just talked about. And we claim those to be true. And we think it's, it's easy now. God has saved us. God has killed sin. God has killed our death. In Christ we have died so that we may have life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, my Lord. And we think that all of a sudden, as Christ went into the grave, so did our sin. As Christ went into the grave, so did our false desires. And we think that when Paul says in Romans 8 that we'll get to when he says more than conquerors, we think we will be only conquerors and not just conquerors, but conquerors apart from any sort of foe. We expect, whether we consciously believe it or not, through our actions, we show that we believe that it will be an easy life. We show that there will be limited opposition, small obstacles, a wonderful lack of old ladies crowding the track you're trying to sprint around, and we become, we pray to the false idea that our life becomes typified by victory in a vacuum, without the presence of anything else, rather than faithfulness in a fight. Our life is not, as believers, a path of clarity in terms of opposition, but it's a path clearly defined with a fight that's ahead. You see, we see passages like, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, and yet, right, we we put our athletes, get that tattooed on their bodies, we put it on on Instagram, we talk about it, and yet we sin. But if we can do all things through Christ, why are you sinning? There already proves to be a dichotomy in our belief. We look at the love is passage, right? When you go to weddings, you see love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it is not proud, it is not rude, it is not self-seeking, and we look at ourselves as typified by that love, and we say, no one in that moment is like, man, I don't measure up. We're like, I am patient, I am kind, I do not envy, I do not boast, I do not delight in evil, I rejoice in the truth! And yet, our natural I believe it's Charles Spurgeon who said this, our natural drift as believers is not to warmth, but to coldness. You see, the Christian life, even for the believer, if left undirected and unopposed, will not drift towards Christ. But we will drift and be encountered with obstacles of all kinds. And I can tell you this, I've been a believer for about 20 years and I know what Paul just said in Romans 7 to be far more true of me than 1 Corinthians 13 is true of me. I know more often than seeing myself as the perfect picture of love, I know Paul's cry of who will deliver me from this body of death. I know the cry of the Father in Mark where he says, I believe and help my unbelief. And here's the thing, we know that the wonderful truths of victory are true for us, for that's the way in which we've saved, we were saved. We are more than conquerors, we have been redeemed, we are ransomed, and yet we still look at porn. We still compare ourselves to others, we still wrestle with eating disorders, suicidal thoughts, Dark seasons of self obsession, moments of uninterrupted self gratification. So, if that is present in our lives, the question you need to have an answer for is how is that different from the life of death Paul just described? If we are still seeing sin leverage itself through commandments, how are we different? Do we simply concede that, sure, there's going to be sin, but there's grace, so we have license to sin. Sin's no longer an issue because Christ died for it. Paul already talked about that. By no means should we do that. By no means should we think the gospel gives us license to sin. But you see, Romans 7, 6 that we looked at last week says that we've been redeemed to live and serve in the new way of the Spirit, not the old way of the law, which means the distinction is the desire that we serve. The distinction for the believer is your desire. Believers will desire to please God. Believers will desire to serve Jesus. Believers will desire to put on Christ and put off. Put off flesh. Believers will desire in the depth of their soul. Even though often we will sin. More times than not sometimes as we learn to grow and learn to live we will fall prey. In the depth of our soul we want to do what pleases God. And that delight and that desire, it frames the octagon of our soul where we wage war the rest of our life. Inside of that desire is ultimate safety, but inside of that desire is the stage on which we fight. You see, far from excusing his sin or giving license to sin, saying, yeah, I still sin, that's all right. You'll be a sinner, right? How many times do you say, ah, we're all sinners? Rather than justifying his sin and being okay with a level of contentment, did you see the words Paul used to describe his sin? He's disgusted at his sin repulsed at his sin, hateful towards his sin. Let me encourage you in here. Only a converted heart is able to hate his sin. If you want a cause for celebration, how do you view sin? If you view sin warmly and with apathy, I pray for you. But if you view sin, and even at the the smallest corner of your heart, you say, I do not want that in my life then you have experienced the grace of conversion because sinners desire sin, but believers desire to please God. And you see, a non-believer may be able to avoid sin. We might, a non-believer might be able to walk the straight and narrow and appear to be a good, wholesome person. But here's the difference. While they might be able to causally, through the grace of God, avoid sin, only a believer can have victory over sin. For only a believer has seen sin rendered useless in the cross of Christ. You see, it's true that we will fall from time to time, but it's also true that by the grace of God, our desire will prove to result in fruit for God. As a believer, we will, if we are converted, see victory over sin. We will see fruit, which was once for death and lawlessness and unrighteousness, begin to manifest itself as fruit unto God. It is true and wonderfully right and to be expected that we will not always fall prey to sin. Paul's message here is not you as a believer are subject to a life of being the whipping boy of sin and temptation, but he's framing it that while we fight, you will receive victory. Look at what the same Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, verses 8 through 12. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Always carrying in the body of death, or in the body, the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifest in our mortal flesh. Now, listen, pay attention to this line. So death is at work within us, But life in you. Do you see that tension? Yes. We know, taste, and have oftentimes bedded down with death. But we also have life, we also experience something distinct. We are weakened but we are not defeated. We are able to fall, but we are also assured of a victory, which means you cannot be mindless as you view your Christianity. You cannot be thoughtless of, in 10 years, where will I be with God? I don't care, I'll get there naturally. To get there naturally is to end up back with the one who died, and it's sin, and that will be then You but to actively desire and serve and seek out the life which Christ has purchased for us is to fight the fight of faith. And this tension is the last point we see tonight. This is the life of deliverance and division. Look at Romans 7, 21 through 25. Actually, we'll just go through 23. So I find it to be a law So Paul here is making up his own law. What's this law, right? What's going to happen? What always happens as if it were a law? That when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin, which dwells in my members. See, even a non-believer feels what was just talked about they know that there has to be something more that I'm living for. I know what Mother Teresa looks like. I don't look like that. Do I want to? Yeah. Is it okay if I don't put in that effort to get there? Yeah. In a perfect world, should I do good to most people everywhere? Yeah. And you settle. But how much more does a believer know this to be true? How much more do you know that when you have a desire to do good and to please God, there is always, meaning not never, is it without the pull of sin in your heart saying it's easier to do something else. And it tries to seize you and deceive you and kill you. Yeah, you might think that's what's best for you, but is it worth the fight? Is it worth the effort? Is it worth the determination? Is it worth the concentration? And we know that every time we seek to know rightly and we look at the truths of Romans 3 and 4 and 5 and 6, we know we encounter the man of Romans 7 waging war in our bodies to obey disobedience. To follow it unto death. We live as jackal and Hyde, knowing what to do, but wrestling with the other person who still exists in us. And that person is just this, this, this flesh that we live in. It's the sin that's still, that, that uh, Paul uses the phrase to talk about the ruler of this world. We live in a world that Christ has already signed, sealed, and delivered, Satan's death certificate, but Satan is still active. Paul goes on to say he prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. It's not that flesh, it's not that the skin is bad, but this, sin, this skin is able to be deceived by the sin that is so present in our world. This is what leads the Apostle Paul, super Apostle Paul, chief writer of the New Testament Paul, missionary Paul, apostle of the glory of God, Paul, to cry out this in Romans 7, 24. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? How often Is that the cry of believers? In the presence of sin, in the presence of relationships we know to be wrong, in the presence of choices we know to lead us to death, in the presence of an easy decision which leads us to self-gratification over a life that pleases God, do we cry, who will deliver me from this tension? Who will deliver me from this decision? And his immediate answer without pause or second thought, is this. Thanks be to God. Through our Lord and Savior, or through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh, my body, I serve the law of sin. Now, I love this tension, because we just saw, and this is actually one of the reasons why I think this is a a, a Christian Paul, because we see this tension beforehand, and we could say, well, maybe that's not Christian, but we see a deliverance in verse 25, and we see the same fight. I've been delivered, thanks, go- thanks-, thanks be to God, and yet there's still this war. You see, I love how Paul thanks and concedes to this conversion. He answers his own question, who will deliver me? God already has. Thanks be to God that Jesus has died for my sin. Thanks be to God that Jesus put a bullet in the head. Thanks be to God that I have been died and buried with him in baptism to be raised now in his life. Thanks be to God. Praise Jesus that while we are of the flesh, we are no longer in the flesh. Praise Jesus that while we know death, we are no longer in bondage to death. Praise Jesus that while we were once in the dominion of darkness, we have now been transferred into his marvelous light and paul knows where this goes paul's getting we're in romans 7 i'll give you a hint next week is romans 8 okay in romans 8 paul begins to concede to this wonderful hope which will one day be ours that thing who we are are not yet but one day will be praise god paul says that the war against our flesh will not be eternal That this tension we have in our hearts is fleeting and momentary and it will give way to what he says in chapter 8, verse 23. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruit of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. You see, right now in salvation we have been raised with Christ, but one day we will be raised like Christ will be raised from the dead in a physical, imperishable body, which Paul goes to talk about in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 42 and 45. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. And if there is a natural body, There will also be a spiritual body. Oh, believer, what great hope hope we have. One day, we will not only be able to resist sin, we will be free from the desire to do it. One day, we will be able to do only good. One day, we will be delivered ultimately and finally from the grip of sin. One day is coming, one day is secure. One day is promised, but right now we live as delivered and yet divided. Paul talks about this in Galatians 5, verse 17. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Now, I find this to be very interesting. If you have your Bibles, look at the very first verse of Romans chapter 8. Now there's therefore no longer condemnation. He goes on to talk about life in the spirit. While we are left to fight, Paul will say, you're not left to fight alone. If Romans 7 was our only hope, we're we're, we're screwed. But because God has given us the spirit, we not only have the picture of Christ to pursue, but we're also empowered by God himself to resist sin. But here's what I find interesting, okay? Listen to this. I find it sobering that before Paul gives us the assurance of victory in Romans chapter 8, he gives us in Romans chapter 7 the assurance that there will be war. Victory is wonderfully certain. But so is our fight. With our minds, we are redeemed. And we know Romans 3. We know Romans 4. But like treasures in fragile jars of clay, we wrestle with the weakness of our faith and the physicality of our life. John Piper said of this text, Our victory in Christ is not deliverance from the battle, but it is an assurance that we will win. You see, this text is wonderfully real to Paul, and it's wonderfully real. To us as believers, we know Romans 7 because we live it. We know the split desire of our heart, though we are redeemed. And in conclusion, this text makes two big assertions. Number one, it asserts that the presence of sin and even the desire in you to sin does not mean you're unconverted. For until we are ultimately redeemed, we will wrestle with sin. Secondly, it assumes that we as believers are caught in the battle of who we once were and who we will one day ultimately be. So I want to ask you three questions as a result. Three questions that frame this tension. Number one, what's your desire? If it's the desire to do good, which makes us distinct from death, what is your desire? Is your desire at the core of your heart, to please God. If your desire is to resist sin, by God's grace, you are showing your conversion. And by God's good grace, as we continue to fight, we will learn to sin less here on this earth. By God's grace, the best days of the believer are ahead of us. And while we will still sin, by God's grace it will be less because we will have tested more sin to be deceiving and false and tested more of God's grace to be enduring and true. What is your desire in your fight as a believer? Is it to avoid hell? That's noble. It's not going to last, it's not an enduring desire. Is it to look good, to fulfill a law, to be seen as one who's holy and pure by your parents or peers? That's good. We should look good. We should do things which appear to be good. But that too will fail. But if your desire is to please God with the whole of your life, you're capable to fight. Second question where's your discipline? Where's your discipline? Because we live in the tension of two salvations, we must be disciplined if we expect to resist sin. We will not resist sin naturally. We will not resist sin passively. So what are you doing in your life right now which minimizes sin? My question really is, where is your fight? If you look at your life, do you have an arena taped out? Caution tape, red flares, safety cones. This is where work is happening. This is where I'm limiting my exposure. I'm limiting my outlets. This is where I'm doing everything possible. Not just praying. Not just hoping. Not just blindly confessing. Not just coming to grips with, but waging war, going tooth and nail, round for round, punch for punch against the vices of sin. What safeguards do you have in place? What practices are you putting Where's your discipline, for it is needed. Lastly, what is your cry? What's your cry? Paul t- gives a cry in Romans 7:24, "Wretched man am I who will deliver me from this body of death." So my question to you, is your cry a cry of desertion? Nah, it's hard. Or is it Paul's cry, which is followed up immediately by a cry of determination? A cry of guttural remembrance in reaction to our current situation rooted in the reality that while we are weak, we are also victors Is your cry to remind yourself that you really have died to sin, that it has no power, that it is sin who has died and Christ who has risen? Do you scream audibly even in moments of sin that this is not what God has purchased you for, that you are able to resist, that you are able to defeat sin? And as Christ lived sinless, as Christ killed sin, and as one day Christ will ultimately bury sin, you too can do that today because we as Christians, we fight so rarely. Our generation is innately soft because of our soft touch screens. It's innately comfortable because of our personalized radio stations. But the comfort of the believer comes in the cry of battle, waging war against the powers and principalities knowing that greater is He who is in you than he who is in the world. And rather than hoping for victory and wishing in blind luck, we gaze at Christ and know we too can resist sin for the good of our joy and the glory of Christ. Let's pray.